Earlier this week, I saw a cartoon showing a mom, a dad, and a young child in a snowy scene. The little boy was inside the house looking out a big picture window, and the thought bubble said, I wonder if I'll have school. Dad was outside cleaning off his car, and his thought bubble said, I I wonder if it's safe to drive or my car will start. And the mom was walking on a sidewalk thinking, I wonder if I'll slip. And the title of the cartoon was Winter Wonderland. (laughs) I felt that way this week. Hasn't it been we've wondered if we'd ever get out? Donovan picked a great time to get out of Dodge on Thursday morning. But how many of you have been experiencing cabin fever? When we sent the email out announcing that the church would be closed yet again on Friday, a member wrote me saying, I'm so disappointed with our ministers from Iowa, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. I replied, if TDOT plowed and salted like they do in Iowa, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota, we wouldn't have a problem. Amy's sister sent me a link yesterday showing all of the primary and secondary roads in Nashville that were cleared. We live on Stoneway Trail off of Whitebridge at the top of the hill, and it wasn't on either of those lists. Our hill resembles that ski jump slope that was featured every week when I was a boy at the beginning of Wide World of Sports for the agony of defeat image of the skier crashing just before the jump. So much for winter wonderland. Our gospel text from Mark 1 is Jesus' call to the fishermen. This week, the only fishing they'd be doing is ice fishing, but nevertheless, the call is upon them. Hear the word of God. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As a boy, I don't ever recall going to vacation Bible school at my home church. I'm sorry, Susie, I have to make that, uh, that, that confession to you. I'm not sure why, and I never had the chance to ask my folks about it. Surely there was one. I mean, I have a vague memory of Bonnie, our Christian educator, and some spotty recollections of Sunday school, but when it comes to VBS, nada, at least at my home church. I do remember going with a buddy one summer to his church's vacation Bible school. It was sometime in late elementary school because I recall riding my bike home. 
We lived on Westminster Road. How's that for a start for a pastor? In uh, the last street in the city of Bethlehem proper. And just over the line in Bethlehem Township, they were turning cornfields into new neighborhoods and new schools and new churches. Dave's was one of those new church, Ebenezer Bible Fellowship Church. It was brand new and so different from my church, which sat in stately colonial symmetrical splendor on a 50-acre campus. In town, my church was known as the Spike on the Pike because our steeple was so large. I don't recall a single bit of the teaching from that VBS, though I'm sure there were felt board stories, but what I remember most was marching into my house one afternoon after coming, singing at the top of my lungs, I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. A song was new to me and kind of got hold of me, got inside me. It wasn't in the repertoire that Ruth Wagner taught us at the First Presbyterian Church's children's choir. Maybe it didn't quite fit in with the starch-ruffled collars and the neatly pressed choir robes and the ordered worship where wiggles were certainly not welcome. And maybe that's why it stuck with me. Whatever the reason... I remember vividly the, the, the coming into the house, singing that. And of course, the family used to tease me the way I would sing it loudly and off-key. Maybe some of you grew up singing it too. The disciples, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John sang it first. Both of our, our lessons this morning are what are called call stories. These stories of Paul and Jonah and Mark follow a, a typical pattern in some ways, but in other ways they don't. They, they divert from that. We, we don't get Jer- Jeremiah's pushback about being too young or Moses' claim that he doesn't really talk well. No one in these passages worried about being unworthy or ill-equipped. God called and they went, or at least Jonah finally went after trying to run in the opposite direction. That's one of the challenges in the Jonah story. In vacation Bible school, we tend only to learn that Jonah ran away and that God sent the whale to take him to Nineveh, but we don't focus so much on why he was going there and what happened after he went. Sometimes in my Bible studies, as we're reading a passage, I'll ask the class to think about if they were Cecil B. DeMille or Steven Spielberg and had to turn the scene into a movie How would they stage it? What tone of voice would the actors use? Where would the people stand? What would the lighting be? And what kind of music would they use? In both of our texts this morning, I think the music would be ominous. Do you hear it in Mark? Now, after John was arrested, that's the the context of Jesus opening up his ministry. First verse, dark skies, black clouds, ominous, dangerous, foreboding. And in Jonah, the very name of Nineveh would have sent a a shiver of fear through any Jew. Why? Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, that cruel and brutal people 
who had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They were hated and feared. And Jonah knew God and knew that if God sent him to Nineveh to preach, the Ninevites might hear the message of God and God might spare them. The destruction that that Jonah wanted to happen. So he hightailed it to Tarshish until Moby Dick caught him and spit him up right at the gates of Nineveh. And then as our passage tells, he fulfills his call. And what happens? What he worried about what happened did. They repented of their ways and God spared them. And what did Jonah do? He pouted. He sulked. He threw a pity party. Why on earth do you think that the story of Jonah made it in the Bible in the first place? Scholars tend to think that the story of Jonah was one of the latest books in the Old Testament put together around 400 B.C. to remind the people of Israel that the ultimate mission and purpose was to be the light to the whole world. It's, a, it's an important countervoice in the Old Testament, a, a minority expression, a, a dissenting opinion from the dominant post-exile attitude of wanting for greater security and thus drawing the wagons into a tighter circle of only those considered pure Jews. It, it reminds us that there is a wideness in God's mercy, a wideness that is scandalous in how wide and winsome it is. And if we only focus on Jonah and the whale, we can easily miss the point that God's gracious inclusion is to the outsider as well. There's a danger, I think, in missing the point in Mark's passage too. We're halfway this Sunday in the season, what's called after Epiphany, that runs until Ash Wednesday and the beginning of Lent. Now, most of us didn't grow up with any particular focus on the liturgical calendar. Sure, some of us knew and observed Advent and Christmas, Lent and Easter, but I would think most of us, certainly those of us of a certain age, that is to say old like me, did not think much about the whole church year. Increasingly, there's been an emphasis on it, and perhaps you, like me, find yourselves marking time throughout the year according to the liturgical calendar's rhythms. One commentator, Fleming Rutledge, observes, this somewhat unexpected development has shown that the calendar can be a powerful aid to growth in faith and service. The rhythm of the seasons, the repetition of the sequence year after year despite outward circumstances, the variety and richness of the scriptural readings, and most of all the story that the seasons tell in narrative progression throughout the year, all of this can be powerful for the nourishment and growth in grace. Thus we may say that the calendar is edifying, providing instruction, guidance, and inspiration for the upbuilding of the church. But above all, the church year leads us to Jesus Christ. The progression of the seasons with all is said and done is designed so that the members of Christ's body may participate even more in the internal life by rejoicing in the living presence, following him in various vocations, enacting his teaching in all our ministries, knowing him as Savior, and above all, glorifying him as Lord.
After all, as the old catechism teaches, our chief end, our purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. In his book, Celebrating Liturgical Time, Neil Alexander reminds us that the Feast of the Epiphany is older than the Feast of Christmas and possesses a much richer tapestry of themes. We've already begun to illustrate this tapestry. The ancient feast of January 6th is followed by the season after Epiphany, and we'll still have it today. It's designed in the liturgical calendar as a narrative that displays an arc of God's revelation, beginning in the infancy of Jesus and moving quickly into his entrance upon the public ministry as his baptism followed by examples of his miracles, healings, and teaching, reaching the climax and the transfiguration, the crowning event of Epiphany before beginning Lent. From its beginning by the light of the star to its culmination on the mountain, these Sundays are designed to display the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God shining in and transforming our hearts even now. Epiphany, then, is a Christological season. It helps us look closely at who Jesus is and what Jesus does. They allow us to focus on the divine origin and identity of the one who called the fishermen from their boat, saying in Eugene Peterson's translation, Come with me, I'll make you a new kind of fisherman. I'll show you how to catch men and women instead of perch and bass. Again, if you were to make a movie out of the scene from Mark's gospel, how would you film it? Consider the beautiful painting on the front of the bulletin today, Duccio's Calling the Apostles Peter and Andrew that hangs in the National Gallery of Art. Jesus standing on the shore, right hand raised to the two in the boat. Is it, as we often hear it, an invitation to become disciples? Fleming Rutledge suggests that this misses the point. As Jesus walks along the beach and sees the men with their boats, he utters not an invitation, but a command, follow me. Mark typically dramatizes this and offer they cannot refuse. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Likewise, Matthew Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Just like that. In the painter Cavaggio's masterpiece, The Calling of St. Matthew, Jesus enters the room where the tax collectors are sitting around a table counting money, and we see him commanding, follow me. And as he says this, he points to Matthew, and Matthew gestures in the painting, who, me? But Jesus' feet are already turned back toward the door. There's no possibility of Matthew resisting. An epiphany in the New Testament is a revelation of Jesus' identity and power. He's able to command and elicit an immediate response. This is not just personal charisma. At the baptism, we've heard the voice of God identifying His Son. We are meant to be awestruck by this indications of Jesus' majesty and glory. That's what the season of Epiphany is designed to display. Now, of course, Mark's gospel is big on showing how the disciples did after they followed, and it's not a pretty scene. 
James and John are known primarily for their sharp elbows and trying to get close to Jesus at the expense of everybody else in the circle. And Simon Peter denies Jesus three times. But even that is not the end or even the point. As Joe Duffield puts it, we can look to Jonah post-big fish pre-wishing to die, and we can admire the immediate and total come-to-Jesus moment of Simon and Andrew, James and John, but we should not imagine their story of faith is all that different from our own. Obedience and recalcitrance, praise and complaint, faithfulness and apostasy, service and selfishness, awake and asleep, hospitable and withholding, saint and sinner and human, yet called beloved by God. No one does what is right and good all the time. Rarely are things neat and buttoned up. My, my favorite designation for the life of discipleship is that long obedience in the same direction. But, but it's not a linear race, a straight line. It's much more like a, a, a yacht race where you're having to tack and all of a sudden the wind picks up and drives you further along. It's rarely, in my experience, straight and easy. We are often blown off course. And then we hear Jesus' voice calling us, commanding us back again. Isn't that your experience in this life of faith? Having accepted and received a call and not completely being able to fulfill it? It's certainly mine. And yet because God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent, we can be bold to drop our nets and follow, imperfectly, humanly. Trusting that when we can't or don't or won't, God won't abandon us, but instead will meet us where we are, give us some shade for a time, patiently teach us, and in the end, redeem us. And then come to us again like he did Simon Peter and the others who went back to Galilee, back to the nets after the the awful experience of watching the crucifixion, to command them again to go fishing for people. Or as he says in John's gospel, feed my sheep. Friends, I, I, I think Rutledge is right. Often Jesus is call to us comes as a command. But I think it also comes as an invitation. We'll sing in a moment that hymn, Softly and Tenderly. John called and said, is is it okay if we use that hymn? I said, you know, I didn't grow up singing that hymn. I don't have any baggage with that hymn. I never heard it until I watched that movie, A Trip to Bountiful, when it came out. And I fell in love with it. For I have heard Jesus' voice as a command. And when I have failed and fallen, I have also heard that tender voice calling me gently to come back and to get back at the work that we're called to do.
to go demonstrate his grace in a broken world and to call others to join the journey. So come, drop your nets. Let's go fishing. Amen.